Recovery Elevator, episode 119. I had the gift of desperation. I, I had a couple of my friends say that to me, and I truly believe that I was given that, that gift. I had reached the lowest point where I knew I was ready. I knew that I had to change. I knew I was an alcoholic, although it took me quite some time to actually say it in the meeting. I knew I belonged. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, it's been 32.66 months since my last drink. On today's podcast, we've got Carrie. She's 43 years old. She's been sober for over four years, and she realized that sailing sober wasn't as hard as she thought it was going to be. As I mentioned in the previous episode 118, that Cafe RE, the private membership community, is now capped at 250 members. We've got about 15 people on a waiting list and wait until we get to about 30 or 40 before we launch the new group. So if you'd like to join the new Cafe RE, the second group we're going to launch, and this one is only going to contain 200 members to ensure intimacy, be sure to join. Your card won't be charged until we launch the new group. Okay, let's get started. A friend of mine sent me a link to the video, The 13th Step, which is a video on Amazon Prime. He asked me, what's my take on this? So I watched it, wrote some notes, and well, here it is. Right from the start, it exposes a negative light on AA when a woman who works at the World AA headquarters in New York City says she receives a ton of emails from people who have been sexually assaulted from AA members. This is a like minute two in the documentary, and I'm like, hey, how do you really feel about AA? What is this movie going to really be about? Now, what is the 13th step? Well, in the film, they say the 13th step is a euphemism saying that someone can sexually prey on a member with less sobriety. Wow, that's frightening. This film, it does a good job of shedding some light on the fact that there are a lot of predators in AA. AA is a society with millions of members in it. Of course, there's going to be some predators in there. There's some amazing people in AA as well. But I did learn some surprising things that were a little bit disturbing. I found that courts are ordering violent and sex offenders to AA meetings as part of plea deals. I understand that DUI offenders are sentenced to AA as part of their rehabilitation process, but I didn't know that people who didn't have drinking problems, such as sex offenders, were sentenced to AA. It, to me, is actually very disturbing. I've said on this podcast that all walks of life could use the steps to benefit them as a person. But I don't feel that somebody who doesn't have a drinking problem should be sentenced to AA. That just doesn't make any sense to me. It shows a clip of Carolina Panthers' Greg Hardy, which is an NFL football player, convicted of sexual assault. had nothing to do with alcohol, and he was ordered to AA. Yeah, this makes no sense to me. The film interviews a gentleman named Jim, who is an ex-AA board member. He says anywhere from 40 to 60% of AA attendees are court-ordered. Wow, that seems extremely high to me. I've said before on this podcast, if on some crazy planet that people were court ordered to listen to the Recovery Elevator podcast, I'd say no way. I want people listening to this podcast because they want to improve their life. They want a chance and opportunity to experience a life like they experienced before alcohol. This should not be some sort of punishment. If you're listening to this podcast as a sort of punishment to yourself, like, damn it, I drank last night. I'm going to listen to five episodes in a row. Well, it shouldn't be that way. You need to listen to this podcast as an opportunity to improve yourself. I'm going to take this time to share my opinion on AA. Again, this podcast has no affiliation with AA, but I've been to hundreds of meetings. AA was a big part of my sobriety. I love AA, and I hate AA at the exact same time. I guess that would be called a love-hate relationship, but I can take what I want and leave the rest. However, someone in this film does make a good point. You actually can't take what you want and leave the rest. If you don't like the first step, you can't proceed to the second step. You're actually screwed if you don't like the first step, and according to them, you might die. So about half of this film is just trying to persuade viewers that AA is full of predators that prey on vulnerable people. Sure, this does happen, unfortunately, but this also happens on PTA boards and Boy Scouts of America groups, pretty much any organization ever. If you have a group of people, there's going to be a predator and there's going to be a vulnerable person inside of it. Sure, there are definitely some flaws about AA, but I wouldn't let this film completely dictate your viewpoint on AA, especially if you haven't given it a shot. But there's a lot of truth to the fact that there are a lot of vulnerable people in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
to call myself vulnerable when I first went to AA would have been a huge emotional upgrade to my status. I wasn't vulnerable. I was shattered. I had to crawl underneath the door. Me being vulnerable would have been welcomed. Shattered? I was completely broken. Yeah, I was lucky that I found a genuinely good sponsor. If he had said, yeah, you know what? You need to come over and spend the night in a bunk bed with me. I probably have been like, well, if that's what I got to do to get sober, then maybe I will. I just get the top bunk. The film exposes a lot of stories like that happening. So if you do attend AA in early sobriety, it's important to be cognizant that it's not as safe as a place as you thought it was. And not everybody's intentions are to see you get sober. Be careful of that dude named Jim, Bill, or Bob that claims to have 30 years of sobriety if he just won't leave you alone. Be careful. One of my favorite lines from the movie is when a guy says, Attending AA is like seeing bad theater. Everybody just one-ups each other's stories. You've wrecked one car? Oh, I've wrecked five. Another point I found interesting was that you hear all the time in these meetings is that AA has no opinions on outside manners and all the groups are autonomous. Well, I think they better start having an opinion on outside manners, especially some of these autonomous groups. This is a very litigious world and AA has been sued a ton of times. Another point they bring up is that AA has been deemed highly religious in all 50 states, and this is a violation of the First Amendment to be sentenced to AA. People need to realize this, and they legally can't be forced to attend AA. My take on the movie is, it sucks. No, not so much the fact that it's bashing AA. You can spin any program into a cult, into something where it's just full of predators, which in my opinion is not the case. I've experienced a completely different AA, full of very supportive, fun, loving people. Sure, are there predators there? There probably are. But in my unprofessional opinion, this film sucks. It's the concept of it that sucks. There's a part in the film where they're interviewing a neuroscience doctor, and he was saying that alcoholism was a personality disorder. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about, why it sucks. No one has any effing clue of what alcoholism is, what addiction is. This is a doctor who's saying this. Now, I've done a lot of research on this stuff, and most doctors, medical professionals, are in congruence that addiction is a disease. He was like the 3% of scientists that are on ExxonMobil's payroll that don't believe in global warming. I don't know if he had a motive to say that addiction is not a disease, but calling it a personality disorder, that kind of pisses me off. And it pisses me off that there's movies bashing programs that are are trying to help people. Sure, AA, it doesn't have a high success rate, but really no programs have a high success rate. It sucks that a high success rate in the high single digits is the best we've got out there, and that would be AA. I hope in 100 years from now, we can look back at this video and say, wow, we have gone so much farther ahead They had no clue what was going on 100 years ago back in 2017. That was a frustrating thing that came to mind while watching this video. As I'm recording this intro, I realize my thoughts are quite scattered. I'd give myself about a C plus on this intro. No, that's being generous. Probably about a C on this intro. And I'll explain why after we hear from Carrie. Carrie, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Paul? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for asking. Carrie, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I have been sober for four years. Nice job. February 23rd, 2013. Sweet. Congratulations. And before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, are you married, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? I am from all over, more or less. I've moved most of my life. Montana is actually the ninth state that I've lived in. Wow. I mainly grew up up and down the East Coast. I lived in the West Coast as well, but Montana is home. I lived in Big Sky for almost 18 years wow. this summer. I've been married for nine years this summer. And what I do for fun is pretty much anything outdoors. Obviously, I live in Big Sky, so I love to ski. And in the summer, it is hiking biking, sometimes getting on the water and doing a little whitewater rafting or kayaking. And then I also love to sail and scuba dive. Nice. And run. There you go. I do a lot of running. 
<laughs> you you mentioned you lived up in Big Sky for 18 years. Is that what you said? Yes. Wow. Yes. And, and and listeners, Big Sky, I imagine, used to be a sleepy community about an hour and 10 minutes away from the Bozeman International Airport. And it's it's where Big Sky Ski Resort is, which is, I think last year it was, the largest ski resort in the world per acreage. And then I think Deer Valley merged in Salt Lake City. I could be totally wrong on all that, but it's this massive ski resort. And you've probably seen it change a lot in the last 18 years, right? Oh, my goodness. A massive amount was change, which is sometimes good, and it's it's that love hate relationship where you love to see your sleepy little small town grow a little bit, but with growth, there sometimes can be too much. Yeah, and but in, I absolutely love it. And in those resort towns, I grew up in right outside of Vail, Colorado, um, and and so I know oh. that there's a lot of partying going on. Isn't there like a like a six to one, like six bars to one person ratio, something like that? Oh, I would believe that. <laughs> it seems a lot. I'm kidding on that, but there's bars everywhere, right? <laughs> there's a lot. Yes, they are everywhere. It's vacation. Everybody's here to have a good time, including the locals. Yeah, those are tough communities to get sober in, um, especially you know if, if you're not uh, doing your own business, whatnot. You know, there's a lot of service industry restaurants and you know, service industry positions, and I struggled to get sober when I was living with my parents for what seemed like a long time. They were great roommates. But, you know, after, after Spain, I moved back and I was working in restaurants trying to get sober and it just wasn't working. And so I tried another geographical change to Seattle and, you know, the geographical changes don't work. And then that brought me to Montana where I eventually got sober. But, you know, let's talk a little bit more about your drinking and, you know, what were your drinking habits like over four years ago, kind of leading up to your sobriety date? Oh my goodness. My drinking days started when I was 15, high school. I think that's fairly typical from what I've heard from other people's stories and sharing. I would say I ramped up. I also lived in Vail, Colorado. I moved to Vail, Colorado out of college. Are you serious? I'm serious. Yeah. When, when, when did you Vail live there? From the summer or fall of 1997 to 99, right before, until I moved to Big Sky. Nice. Yeah. You know, I kind of went from a college town, which, of course, had a lot of drinking and partying involved, to Vail, Colorado, which was more or less like a college town without college. I was able to go out, for the most part, every single night and really live it up. And then moving to Big Sky, I thought I had died and gone to heaven because one of my first experiences in the local bar here in Big Sky on my way out, I was offered a to-go cup because when I first moved to Big Sky, <laughs> you were allowed to have an open container in your vehicle. Yeah, that sounds like Montana. <laughs> Which I thought was crazy. Now that law has since changed, thank goodness, I think, for the better of everybody. Yeah, I agree. Safety. <laughs> but I was amazed that how you could just kind of leave the bar and walk down the street with an open container. And that was very much accepted. I think it's somewhat still accepted to this day that you can kind of walk around and go from bar to bar with your beverage. Yeah. And how many drinks uh, were you, were you drinking when, you know, when you were up in big sky, what would be an average week or an average night? I was more or less a binge drinker than a social drinker. So for me, an average outing would consist of, I don't even know if I ever counted, but it would be drinking until I was couldn't walk or could barely stand and would either stumble home, someone would be so kind enough to make sure I got home safely. And I'm also a blackout drinker, so most of my charades or escapades I don't necessarily remember all mm -hmm. the way to the end, but it would definitely begin with usually a few beers or so at home, a few glasses of wine, something of that sort. And then as I got more and more drunk, it would end up into shots and harder the harder stuff later in the... Because I tried to regulate my drinking. <laughs> and we all know control drinking is kind of almost, I think, the first sign that, hey, maybe there's an issue here. Yeah, and, and how the control drinking go for you, the regulation part? Oh, my goodness. It would go good for a little while, and then I would, I guess, reward myself 
with, oh, you've been so good. And <laughs> it's the reward is always is going... the, the huge problem when the wheels start coming off. <laughs> yes. Um, or I'd be out with friends and they're like, oh, you're not that bad. Or, you know, I was, I was basically given excuses to, or I had a really hard day at work or I had a really great day at work. Didn't necessarily matter what, what the reward I needed. Mm-hmm. I was, I was always giving myself excuses as to why I could either break my control of drinking. So my, my plan or my idea that I was given by a counselor was that women shouldn't drink more than seven drinks in a week. And you can drink that one drink every day. You can drink it all in one day. I know where this is going. You shouldn't have. <laughs> yes, exactly. But you shouldn't have more than seven drinks in one week. So, of course, I would try that. I would try and track my drinks on a calendar, and I would also set myself up with this plan that I would not drink hard alcohol with only beer or wine is what I tried to allow myself, which, of course, didn't work either. You know, it would be, oh, well, I've just had seven drinks, and I'm already at Wednesday so what the hell, I'll just have one more because I'm having a really good week or I'm having a really tough week. And then my whole plan would be shot and I would just kind of throw it out the window. Yeah, if I and was just, under that same regime, that same regimen, I would probably stay sober for a month and have one day where I could drink 28 drinks. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yes, it was, it, was very, it was a very interesting way to go about it, for sure. And it didn't, it didn't work. It certainly didn't last very long at all. I think I was able to do it in the month that I tried. I think I was successful two out of the four weeks. And the other two was, you know, it was like seven drinks a day. I mean, it was certainly well beyond what I was, you know, kind of quote unquote allowed to have. Now, in those two weeks you were successful, were you straight up seven drinks in one week? Did you actually pull that off? I actually pulled that off and I was miserable. (laughs) <laughs> that's uh, I remember thinking how ridiculous this was. Okay, that's a value bomb right there, Carrie, is that you were miserable. And I've talked a lot about willpower on this podcast, and that just goes to show that willpower is finite. It is an inexhaustible resource, and we can only last a certain amount of time on that. And when we're moving forward in our sobriety, thinking that it's a sacrifice, that we're giving up something, then we're tapping into our willpower database, and which is going to run out eventually. And like you mentioned, it's miserable. It sucks to move forward quitting drinking on willpower because we're looking at like we're sacrificing something. Instead, when we shift our thinking, like quitting drinking is an opportunity, you know, we're not tapping into willpower because that's not going to last anyways. It's a completely different experience. Now I got a little bit ahead of myself there. Let's back it up again. And so you did two weeks, you nailed the plan. And then the wheels came off after that. You know, your friends would convince you, Hey Carrie, you know, you don't really seem that bad. And you're like, Tammy, you're totally right. Yeah, let's do this. So what happened after that? So eventually, you know, I would go out with friends and kind of here and there, you know, it would be, oh, you're fine. Let's have some drinks. We're celebrating someone's birthday. For example, I remember this instance. It was actually one of the last times I got drunk before I decided enough is enough mm-hmm. and something's got to give. It was my really good friend's birthday and we all decided to go out to a bar before going to dinner. And we met, and I was convinced, oh, well, let's have these cocktails, and then let's have these shots. And I looked at my friends, I was like, well, I'm, I'm really trying this new thing. I'm trying to only do it like this. And all of my friends and my lovely girlfriends, which I'm still friends with today, kind of looked at me and was like, oh, but it's just this one time. And that's every time when the wheels would come off the track. Mm-hmm. It would be, it's just this one time. It's just this one drink. And then we proceeded to go to dinner. I stayed on the hard stuff because, of course, that's what my body wanted Mm -hmm. and craved. And my alcoholism kind of kicked in, I think, at that point. And we finished dinner and everybody looked around. It was Friday night. And they were like, "Mm, I'm going home. I'm going to bed. And it was like 930. And I'm looking around at all my girlfriends. I'm like, are you serious? Friday night. It's your birthday. Yeah. Let's go. We got to do this. 
you know, I'm you know, at that point, I have a few drinks in and I'm charging hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's party time. Yeah. It's go time. Yeah. So they all went home and I stayed out. You know, I know I made it home eventually because I woke up in my own bed. Mm-hmm. But I and I remember going to a few places with a few different friends that I would meet out at the bar. However, I don't know exactly where I went in all the locations that evening or how I got home. So that's that's always the scary part if you're a blackout drinker is that you remember up to a certain point and then you have no idea what happens after that, which is scary. It scares me now. It didn't ever scare me then. Yeah, fortunately for me, my autopilot was fairly tame. It wasn't that exciting. I would just, you know, I was blacked out and I would just still post up at the bar. I wouldn't get in fights. I wouldn't, you know, I would drink and drive, you know, that's, that's terrible. But, you know, fortunately my autopilot, you know, was, was pretty tame, but that was only, you know, a yet scale. It was like eventually something was going to happen, some other experience around me that I wouldn't be able to control. And yeah, I mean that the blackout thing is, is, is extremely scary. And Carrie, you know, what was your, what was your bottom? Was it, was that when you got sober four years ago about, or did you have, you know, a series of bottoms? I feel like I had a series of bottoms. I feel like my alcoholism, well, at least where I can kind of go back and pinpoint kind of where I kind of crossed that imaginary line in the sand Mm -hmm. of when you go from just a normal kind of social type drinker over into the depths of your alcoholism because everything, all of your holes need to be filled and all of your pain has to go away. Uh, I was in college. I had just turned 21 and my boyfriend killed himself. Oh, wow. And so I think for me, it was a way for me to cope with that loss. He told me that he was going to do that. Yeah. And I think ever since then, there's been this line that I can at least see. Because before then, I was happy. I could go out with friends and everything would be fine. Of course, at a younger age, I was experimenting and playing with that line. And I would go over it and be like, whoa, okay, I can't do that again. But after that happened, I didn't care. I kind of got a little bit of a case of, you know, I don't give a shit. And I would go out by myself. I would sit at the bar until I passed out. And, you know, that was definitely the my deepest bottom that I can remember in college. It really affected my overall health. I had to drop out of school for that quarter. Mm-hmm. And it was... It was a very, very low bottom. And after that, kind of eventually, what that kind of turned into is that what I always say is my stop button no longer worked after that. I eventually was able to kind of process and kind of get through that grief. Although there's still definitely time to time when I do talk about his suicide where I do still get choked up and I do still have tears that kind of come out. You know, I I wasn't able to, after that, I wasn't able to control or kind of just naturally stop when I felt like I had had too much. There was no longer any kind of stop button after that. I would say my next bottom was probably, or I guess I came to this realization that I couldn't continue my life and or my marriage the way that I was drinking. Something was going to have to give whether it was going to be my drinking or whether it was going to be my relationship. But something was going to have to change in order for me to be able to continue in my life. So, of course, I was on marriage number two. Uh, My first marriage fell apart fairly quickly. Do you think that was due to drinking? I definitely know my drinking played a major role. I don't believe we should have been married in the first place. Sure. But I know my drinking played a major, major role. We had several conversations that revolved around word for word. He would say to me, I don't trust you when you drink or I don't trust you when you go out and drink without me. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. And yeah, I think those instincts were spot on. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I remember one of my last drunks or (laughs) Drinking escapades was at the Michael Fuente concert, which I believe was September. So that would have been September 2012. 
I decided that I was going by myself because my current husband had to work. He couldn't come with me. And we had a conversation that day, that afternoon, before I went to the concert. It was here in Big Sky up at the resort. And the conversation was something to the effect of, can you just try and go and have a good time, but only have a couple of drinks so that you can drive home safely and get home? I said, yeah, I can do that. I can certainly do that. But I'm going to take my camping stuff (laughs) and sleep in the back of the truck just in case, just in case I have one too many. Sure. I always had like that backup plan. Yeah, you got to have the backup plan in place. Oh, my goodness. And I proceeded to get obliterated that night. You know, one beer led into probably 10 or 12, which led into shots, which led into, you know, partying all night, dancing, bar hopping, and then me stumbling back to the truck and in the process losing the truck keys, which had all of my camping equipment in it, which was locked. Oh, that could have been a good thing, though, But if you would have driven. But uh, I don't know. Do you think you would have driven? I don't think I would have driven. I think I just wanted my, my sleeping bags. And I had my dogs in the back of the truck. So I was oh, gosh. Kind of yeah. Sleeping what, in the back with them. What did you them. do? I ended up texting my husband because I knew there was a hide-a-key hide on the truck somewhere. And, of course, I was in my drunken state, could not remember for the life of me where it was. And... I texted him, and of course, he was furious that I had gotten as drunk. He could tell, I'm sure, even with the text message, how <laughs> drunk I had gotten. <laughs> the predictive text he just knew me says, very well. I am drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, he came, came up there and picked me up, and he was just livid. Mm-hmm. And I'd never seen him that mad before, ever. And I remember thinking as he dropped me off at our home at like 2.30 in the morning or whatever time it was, you know, he basically looked at me and said, don't talk to me for a couple of days. Hmm. You know, this is going to take some time for me to get past this. And I remember thinking, great, he's going to divorce me too. And I just kind of remember thinking that, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do if he divorces me? I'm, I'm going to be a failure. That was basically what was weighing heaviest on my mind, I think, at that point. I didn't want to be a failure, especially not in marriage. Yeah, and, and we're still four months off of your sobriety month. What happened mm-hmm. from then till then? I went out a few more times and was able to kind of keep it under wraps. And one of the last times, actually, was when I was telling you I went out with my girlfriend for my friend's birthday. Oh, okay. That was that was the final, or, or excuse me, I should say for her birthday. That was the final straw. I don't, again, I don't remember, I don't have any idea what time I got home that night. And my husband, you know, when he works, when Jason goes to work, he is gone for 48 hours. So it gives me a lot of what I used to consider free time. And I could kind of do whatever I wanted to do without any kind of people around me who would be regulating me. And I think he, too, was always nervous when I would go out drinking. There was there was a lot of trust issues in our relationship early on because I would go out and I'm always comfortable going out by myself. I didn't need to go with girlfriends or friends of any sort. I've lived in this town long enough where I could just go to a bar and I would know at least three or four people. Sure. And if I would go there and I didn't know anybody at that bar, I'd go to the next bar. Eventually, I would run into someone I knew. And, and so how and did you do it? I mean, how, how did you how'd you get sober? I was fortunate enough to know some people who I didn't know at the time, but I know now they were in AA. I gave them a call and said, I need help, basically. I don't know what else to do. I know you don't drink, and I know you have, you seem to have a very happy, great life. And I had been talking, to, and it's a married couple, and I had been talking to this couple for, oh, I don't know, a few months here and there, 
we'd get together and I'd ask them about, you know, how they controlled their drinking. Or I just would ask them questions. I was very inquisitive. But it never came out that they were in AA or that they were working any kind of 12-step program. Mm -hmm. And when I finally made the, broke down, made the call, because I knew if I didn't change my drinking habits, I knew what my counselor had suggested wasn't going to work as far as the control drinking. <laughs> I had proven I had proven that. Yeah. I couldn't stay sober for my husband. I had to do it for myself. Bingo. So when I made that phone call, I said, I need help. And it was a Sunday, and they said, well, you're going to have to drive to Bozeman, but let's go to a meeting. So I met them in Bozeman, and we went to a meeting. And I remember sitting in that meeting, and as people went around as they do in first step meetings and they share how they got sober, kind of their experience, strength, and hope. I recognized myself and I quickly realized, wow, this is where I belong. These people know what they're doing. This is the solution. And if they can get sober, I can get sober. Now, I'm going to pause you for change. a second there, Carrie. You, you mentioned three huge value bombs that you know listeners might have <laughs> skipped over. Number one, it, it might seem infinitesimal, but it is not at all when you said you, you reached out for help. You picked up the phone and made a phone call, and, and that action right there has changed the course of your life for the good. And number two, you said you, know, you couldn't stay sober for your husband. Well, I need to do it for myself. And that, from what I've witnessed after doing 120 of these episodes, is, is people, they can't get sober for other people. They get sober for themselves. And the third thing is you were ready to quit drinking. You, when you got to your first AA meeting, you saw yourself in, in the other people there, and which was a stark contrast from my first AA meeting where I wasn't ready to quit drinking. But you were ready to focus on the similarities and not the differences. So, yeah, pick mm -hmm. up, pick up from, from there and, and can tell me about you know, the journey into sobriety. Yeah. So I, of course, was more or less a crying mess my first few meetings. I would say probably for the first month or so, almost every meeting I went to, I would listen. And if I was asked to share, I would be crying most of the time <laughs> through that share. Because when I got to AA, I had the gift of desperation. I, I had a couple of my friends say that to me. And I truly believe that I was given that, that gift. I had reached the lowest point where I knew I was ready. I knew that I had to change. I knew I was an alcoholic, although it took me quite some time to actually say it in the meeting. I knew I belonged. And it just, you know, kind of like we said before, it, it just made sense. It clicked. I could see myself and hear my story and other people's stories. Mm -hmm. I quickly dove into the AA program and the 12 steps. So I ordered a big book. I got the 12 steps and 12 traditions, although I have a women's version of the 12 steps. Nice. Which, yes, which I really think makes a big difference for me. Not that I've ever had a problem with, you know, he or kind of, I guess, relating to or reading books in that he and him version. Yeah. But it... I've never thought about definite. that. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> geared towards one sex if you if you read the older versions. It, it definitely is. And I, I think that finding that... Because I, I went to Bozeman. I went to the bookstore. Uh, what's the one in the mall? I can't remember. It should be Barnes & Noble, uh, right? Barnes & Noble, yeah. And I wasn't, I wasn't embarrassed. I wasn't ashamed, but I found those books. I walked right up to the front. That this is what I'm. This is what I'm buying. This is what I'm. I'm going for. And, <laughs> and you know, they, I just—they were like, "Can we get a price check you know, on the intercom? We, we, <laughs> yeah, we need a price we check on this. You know, four women's twelve by twelve and big book. Uh, yeah, no, no, the woman up for here up front. Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, cur yeah. <laughs> curly hair standing right here in front of me. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> just see that happening. Yes. Um, I do remember not really making eye contact with the person as I checked out, but I knew I needed it. I knew I needed something. And when I was in the rooms of AA, I don't know, I just, I 
I saw their hope. I saw how they had changed their lives. I saw how things were different for the people in there. Some people only had, you know, a few months on me, and some people had, oh my gosh, like 30 plus years. And it was, uh, it was like the light at the end of my dark tunnel. It's pretty remarkable to see the people in the rooms and, and you, you tell yourself, you're like, wait, can that be me one day? I, I don't, I don't know yeah. because there's a lot of happiness and laughter in those rooms and it's, it's quite remarkable. Yes, there, there is. And I, and I think that's, you know, I was still in kind of the depths of my despair and, you know, cause I came in broken and full of shame and that I was a bad person necessarily and that I had done bad things. But I think what I saw in all of them was that they they did those things too, but they were living a different life and they were able to kind of correct those wrongs by living this program yeah. in 12 steps. And Carrie, walk yeah. me through a typical day in your recovery. How do you stay sober today? Hmm. How I stay sober today on a typical day is uh, when I wake up, I have some morning readings that are kind of based in the 12-step program. Mm-hmm. So I have get a couple electronically. One is um, today's gift, and then another one I have basically have a friend of mine in the program who emails it out, and it has like three or four different readings. And then I also have a book, which is Each Day a New Beginning, which is Daily Meditations for Women, and it's a Hazleton book that basically gives me an idea or a thought to cling on to throughout my day. Mm-hmm. And some mornings I go for a run, and I do believe, even though living in Big Sky can be hard because it's such a vacation spot, the beauty that I'm surrounded with on a daily basis really helps me to stay sober. I feel it really keeps me connected to my higher power and keeps me grounded in the fact that I don't have to do this alone. I would say... For the most part, I can kind of go throughout my day without having any kind of thought or any kind of anything for a craving or a thought about alcohol. Even if somebody will bring it up or it's mentioned, I I just don't have those thoughts anymore. It took probably, I would say, six months to nine months for my initial cravings to go away Mm -hmm. completely. And then, you know, I typically will end my day with a thank you. I, I close my eyes and I always, as I'm falling asleep, kind of say a little thank you to my higher power for keeping me sober for today. Yeah, and I want to ask you a little bit more about that, that HP or higher power. It sounds like you and I have somewhat of a similar one. And is yours tapping into that beauty up there in Big Sky, the, the natural beauty? Oh, absolutely. Anything that has to do with my surroundings or outside in the mountains or on the ocean or no matter where I am, as long as I'm outside or can be outside, that is definitely my higher power for sure. And listeners, if, if you want to go on a, a nature trek and just see the beauty, I think a couple of years ago, I was up there DJing a wedding and I saw a Rocky Mountain goat on the side of the road. I saw a moose. I saw a bald eagle. And I saw a fox all in one day. Oh. It was remarkable. Oh, yeah. That is remarkable. Yeah. That is great. Yeah, but you That's see great. bears all the time up there, right? Luckily, I don't necessarily see bears. You see evidence that the bears have been around. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, it's a tip of a trash can or something of that sort. Like your car seat's yeah. been adjusted or something like that? <laughs> yes. Luckily, they've never gotten into my car. I have <laughs> seen a couple cars where they've gotten into and they've basically totaled them. Whoa. Oh, yeah. Well, what happens is they can get the door open. Yeah. And then the door closed behind them and then they're locked in there and they freak out a little bit and they can do some major, major damage. Wow. That would be an amazing (laughs) YouTube video. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, it would. Yeah. And I I want to chat with you before we hit the rapid fire round. Mm -hmm. Um, You you mentioned you and your husband and your husband is in recovery as well. And I'm actually, I'm scheduled to interview him in two days from now and I'm excited to do that. But you two would go sailing together 
you know, in the Caribbean, and a lot of times this involves copious amounts of rum, but your first sailing trip, yeah. you had trepidation going into that first sailing trip that was going to be sober. Why is it, and then what was that like? That was a very interesting first trip. I believe we were both fairly nervous that we were actually going to be able to have fun and enjoy ourselves. How are we going to be able to do this without the alcohol? Because everything we did, you know, down there, it's nothing but painkillers and bushwhackers, and they're so delicious and everything's so hot mm-hmm. that, you know, you go into happy hour and it's a two for one. You know, you get the two for deals. And Jimmy Buffett's not helping anything either. <laughs> yes, exactly. But that first trip, we decided to, we were down there for two weeks. We had some friends of ours coming down for our second week. So the first week we were on our own. We were kind of settling in, figuring it out. And what we found was that we were still able to enjoy our sundowners. It was usually a little bit of a mix of, say, an orange juice, a pineapple juice, or some sort of tropical fruit drink, but without any alcohol. And we still had that ritual of having, you know, something in our hands to toast as we're watching the sunset, which was our tradition before, except this time there was just no alcohol. And it was a lot easier than we thought. We never imagined that we would be able to immerse ourselves back into that old sailing life without the alcohol, but we did it and it was even better than we, especially for me, (laughs) I could... I could remember all of our vacation. I could remember everything that we did. And we still found ourselves going to a few of the places that we frequented uh, where they would have live music. It would be a bar. And we had a fantastic time. We really did have a lot of fun. But I also think it was super helpful because we had each other. We were able to keep each other on track. Yeah. And and when you step back for just a second and observe what, (laughs) <laughs> where you're like, you know, sailing, you're on the open water in the ocean and storms can happen at any moment. If you step back and look at it, like, like yeah, you know, the, the norm is, is getting drunk and shit-faced in that type of environment. It should be totally opposite. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It should be illegal yes. to be out there And I drinking. can tell you, <laughs> and I can tell you as a sailor, there is nothing worse than being on a boat, being hung over and seasick at the same time. Oh, it's got to be miserable. That yeah, and like trying to miserable. rig up sails and stuff during a storm hungover or, or drunk. Yeah, like your oh. footing is already in perilous condition with water on the top of the deck. And then, whoop, adios, just fell overboard. Yes, exactly. Man. Exactly. Well, Carrie, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I think I am. All right, Carrie. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? I would say my worst memory drinking was in college when, for whatever reason, I had found, I found myself on a rooftop of a three-story building, and I was thinking it was going to be a great idea to jump. Oh, wow. That's my worst memory. Whoa, whoa, you got you to keep going there. Did you jump? <laughs> I, I have no idea why I have that thought in my head. I just was sitting on top. It was shortly after my boyfriend had killed himself. Oh, okay. And I was thinking, and I don't remember having the thought that I wanted to die. I just thought it would be fun to feel like I was floating and it would be fun to kind of experience a jump off of this three-story apartment building. Oh, okay. I thought you were having like a Mary Poppins moment up there. I I, I didn't realize it was close to your your ex-boyfriend's death. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Um, yeah, quick anecdote of mine. I was drunk and on the top of a one-story building at Chapman University, and I saw these voluptuous-looking bushes and just decided to do like a like a backfall into it. That was probably the worst decision I've ever made in my entire life. I had to get stitches. I was so cut up. Um, didn't feel a thing, but, uh, yeah, the next day was brutal. My clothes were ripped. I had to throw my pants and my shirt away. It was terrible. Wow. Don't ever jump off that into is. bushes, no matter how welcoming they look. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah. Next question, Carrie. We've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating that you couldn't control your drinking? Yes. At that Michael Fuente concert, I think that was my oh shit moment of I I can't control. I can't control how much I drink, what I drink, 
when I drink, it was definitely my, oh shit, what am I going to do now Mm -hmm. moment for sure. Now you walked us through a typical day in your recovery. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward, Carrie? To be honest, Paul, I think my recovery moving forward, I'm definitely feeling a little bit of a a pull or a push, if you will, to share my story more often. I know you and I have kind of talked um, outside of this podcast, and I've shared with you that it's very hard to be a role model and basically to show people that a sober life is possible mm-hmm. without telling your story. You have to be able to share your story. You have to have that courage to share your story so that other people can more or less be attracted to you to know that it is possible. It is possible to have a sober life. Yeah, to you or the concept of sobriety, I can tell you now it's impossible to share that if you don't share your story. Yes, exactly. And next question, what's your favorite resource in recovery? This could be a book, an app, AA. What do you got? I would say my favorite resource is definitely going to be AA. It's given me a lot. It's also given me uh, my sponsor. It's given me a very strong network, not only of couples in recovery, but it's also given me a lot of strong women with years of sobriety that I need to see. I need to see that they can do it. They can have a happy life. That's very important to me. And in regards to sobriety, Carrie, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, man, that's a really hard question. I would say I hear little gems all the time, but one of my favorites that stuck with me lately is that there's nothing in my 12-step program or AA that tells me I have to figure it out on my own. Hmm. There's no step that says figure it out. I love there's, that. I'm writing just, that down right now. <laughs> you know, you, you reach out for help and someone will always be there. You're, you're not alone and you don't have to do it on your own. It doesn't mean you're weak if you ask for help. So don't figure it out on your own. There are people who have gone before you and they can help you. Don't reinvent the wheel. I agree 100%. And next question, what parting piece of guidance do you have for listeners who are thinking about getting sober or in recovery? I would say to those individuals that no matter how far down you feel you've gone or no matter what your story is or how many people you think you've hurt, you can make a positive change. You can turn your life around and it will be better than you ever imagined. For me, a sober life is so much better than anything I could have ever imagined. Well said. I thought my life was over. Yeah. I, I agree 100%. Right. And before we depart, Carrie, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. <laughs> I, I thought about this and I think one of the funniest things I can think of is you might be an alcoholic if when you go to the bar you order two drinks and you slide the first one to the side because the first one's the one that's always going to get you. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. I think like 50 episodes ago, I had this brilliant plan. I was like, yeah, just order the first drink, throw it away. Don't even touch it. And then you're good to go because it's always the first drink that really gets you into trouble. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I'm not going to try that out, but if I ever did go out and drink again, that's what I would do. Totally. Yeah. That would not work. No. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for sharing your time with me. Very inspirational. I loved hearing more about your story. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate it. I had a great time. Before I get to the explanation of why my thoughts are so scattered today, I want to make an apology to birds. Ty, who edits the podcast, brought to my attention that if no one's going to go to the bird's defense, then she will. She is a birder up here in Bozeman, Montana, and she wanted to correct my statements about the size of bird brains. So I'd like to make an official apology on the podcast. I apologize to all you birds out there that I said you have small brains and you're not very intelligent. I apologize. My brain feels like it's broken because I stopped smoking. Yes. I volunteered at the Hope Rehab Center in Thailand in January, and I picked up a cigarette. Yep. 
at age 34, an asthmatic person in addiction and recovery decided it would be a good idea to smoke a cigarette. Well, one led to two to three to four to 100. You get the point. This is day five and my brain is broken, but it's a good exercise to know what it feels like to be in the cycle of addiction again. It's freaking exhausting. The cognitive dissonance of waking up and saying, I'm done smoking. This is the worst thing ever. And then just a couple minutes later or an hour later, whatnot, that's all you want to do is smoke a cigarette. And it's completely applicable to how I felt when I quit drinking. You wake up and say, I'm done drinking for the rest of my life. Later that day, I'm drunk. Man, it's exhausting. But I know how to do it now. I'm creating accountability. And I didn't want to share this with the audience. Hell no. I'm embarrassed by it. Big time. But the more people I tell about it, the more accountability I create, the better chance that I have to put this habit behind me. In episode 118, I talk about depression. Well, I found out that smoking cigarettes is not improving my depression. So I need to quit smoking cigarettes. I need to quit smoking cigarettes anyways. I need to improve myself. I need to quit smoking and I will. Today is day five. I'm surprised I've even made it this far, but I'm going to keep moving forward. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 